Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A number of years ago, I tagged along with my wife to one of the family practice conferences that she regularly attends. This one was held at the Lodge of the Four Seasons down on the Lake of the Ozarks. It was summer, and during the summer months here in Missouri, it happens quite often that we can get some pretty incredible thunder and lightning storms. And so it happened that while we were down there, one of these storms sort of brewed up above us. The sky got dark and thick, and as the storm rolled in, a bunch of us went to the top floor of the hotel, to one of the doctor's rooms, and we stood at the windows where we could watch the storm as it approached. What a display we saw that afternoon. There were probably close to a dozen of us up in that room looking out the windows. We watched the rain move across the lake, and then we watched the bright cracks of lightning flash all around us like paparazzi flashbulbs going off. The thunder that followed was immediate, and it crashed so loud and so near that the floors and walls of the hotel room shook. It was a violent, powerful thing to behold, and just as suddenly as it started, it stopped. The clouds cracked open and rays of sunlight illuminated the lake and the freshly washed trees, the sunlight reflecting on the water and on the wet leaves made it look for all the world like the entire place was covered in diamonds. A rainbow, one of the clearest, most colorful, most detailed, most vivid rainbows I've ever seen in my life appeared on the far side of the shore behind the tree line. And for a brief moment, it seemed to me as though we had all just been gripped by the greatness of God. He is the creator and all of nature displays and reflects both, both his raw power and his tender mercy. It was an amazing thing. One of the ways I try to help out around my home congregation is by serving as an adult confirmation teacher. I can't tell you how often it's happened that after I've taught about the work of the Holy Spirit, how he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies us all, that someone will hang around after class and tell me how it happened to them. I can't begin to tell you the moving stories that I've heard. People just sort of open up and they share intimate stories from their past, from their growing up days, and how it happened to them that God came near and became a real, warm, loving Lord for them. And when I walk away from these encounters... I'm amazed by the transforming power of God. It happens in the congregations where I preach. Over the years, I've come to see preaching and realize preaching is a lot like hitting a baseball, in that every time you come up to the plate, you don't hit a home run. In fact, more often than not, you're doing good if you can just get to first base. 
So whenever I preach, I'm trying to at least make solid contact with the ball. Uh, There are Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings, however, that are better and worse than others. And I can recall any number of times walking away from the sanctuary and thinking to myself that I had just preached a dog of a sermon and I'm vowing to myself that I'm never going to preach that awful again. And wouldn't you know it, but someone greets me outside the doors with tears in their eyes and says something like, Pastor, how did you know I needed that today? How did you know that that was the kind of message I needed to hear from God. Was that my doing? Was that person's touched heart, comforted soul, or changed life the result of my efforts? Of course not. That was God at work. And each time it happens, and it happens a lot more than you and I realize, I am amazed at the transforming power of God. And so it goes. If you've ever been ambushed by the greatness or the wisdom or the transforming power of God, you know the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You understand that God is dynamic, authoritative, powerful, a little bit dangerous, personal, compassionate, and frighteningly real. After a close encounter with God, you come away from the experience knowing for certain that he is the creator and you are only the creation. And you have this nagging feeling that you should be kneeling or bowing down or prostrating yourself in some way, shape, or form in order to pay homage to him. The first commandment says simply, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? That's simple. It means we are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. In other words, we are to acknowledge his existence, affirm his lordship, obey his decrees, and direct the ultimate affections of our hearts towards him and no one else and nothing else. It means we are not to worship the sun, the moon, or the stars as the pagans did and sometimes still do. It means that we don't worship Baal or Dagon or Molech, as the Old Testament children of Israel sometimes did. It means that we don't worship Allah or Buddha. And it certainly means that we don't worship ourselves or our abilities, as we are so oftentimes tempted to do around here. In the first commandment, God is saying, don't worship material goods, pleasure, or, worship, or money. He's saying, don't worship fame, fashion, position, or men's applause. Just worship me, the one true God. In the first commandment, God says that if you will worship me and only me, I'll see to it that you never regret having done so. Trust me in this, he says. If you honor me, I will honor you. So the what of this commandment is clear. We are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The why of this commandment, however, is a different matter. 
Maybe the why of this commandment has troubled you as it's troubled others. For instance, whenever you hear the first commandment, aren't you tempted at least a little bit to ask, why is God so concerned about our worship going only to him? Sounds kind of narrow-minded, kind of exclusivistic, kind of monopolistic. Why should he have a corner on the market? Sounds a little greedy if you ask me. Is that what's behind the first commandment? Is God an insecure God who's only trying to maintain his market share of worship and praise? Is God simply protecting his ego here? Well, of course not. The primary reason for why God instructs human beings to worship him and him alone is that he knows wherever else we focus our ultimate allegiance will only lead to terrible disappointment in our lives, both now and forever. Putting it another way, God knows that whatever other God you bow down to will not come through for you when you need it most. This is precisely what the writer of Psalm 115 is getting at when he talks about how, over the course of time, people have made for themselves beautiful idols of gold and silver and then bowed down and worshipped their idols. The psalmist says it all goes well until their world caves in, until a rogue wind blows them over or until disaster bowls them down. Then, at that point of their greatest need, when they are exhausted and their own resources of human strength and courage are entirely spent, they fall down before their idol and cry out for help. But Psalm 150 says that their idols have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Psalm 115 is just a poetic way of saying to the idol worshiper, you're wasting your time and you've wasted your worship. Your idol isn't going to come through for you. You thought it would, but it won't. You should have obeyed the first commandment and focused your worship on the God of the Bible, the only true God, because he comes through. He really does. The one true God promises to act on behalf of his worshipers through a variety, through a variety of means, and he does. He really, really does. He promises to watch over his worshipers, and he does. He promises to listen to his worshipers as they pour out their hearts to him, and he does. He listens, and he cares. And best of all, he has the power to touch a life. And he has the power to touch a need or to change a circumstance or to alter an attitude, and he does. He really does. The Bible says he has a strong right hand and he uses it in the lives of his people. You see it best in the person and work of Jesus. 
God is not content to remain above and beyond the fray when it comes to those whom he loves. Instead, he draws near. He takes on their very flesh. He puts himself in their place and in their predicament. He suffers what they should suffer. He dies the kind of death and endures the kind of hell that they deserve. Why? Because his love for his children is greater than the pain of the journey. And then he breaks the power of death when he breaks out of the grave, full-bodied and alive. So don't waste your worship on any other god, because if you do, someday you will be very, very disappointed. See, I know of a woman who said that her marriage and her family meant everything to her. It could be said that they were her God. She gave the highest affection to them. They got her highest and most primary form of loyalty. She just knew that they'd always be there for us. And then one day her husband came along and announced that he didn't want to be her husband anymore. And he didn't want to be the father of their children anymore. She had been so sure What a terrible disappointment for her. Another man's life revolved around his career. His job, he believed, was a ticket to financial security, ego fulfillment, and self-esteem. He reasoned it was good to order his entire life around his job because he was sure his job would always come through for him in a dozen different ways. Do you smell it coming? Indeed, it did. His position in his corporation was eliminated, and as you might think, his world caved in. It never dawned on him that his job wouldn't come through for him. What he had ordered his whole life around, what he had staked his life on, what he had sacrificed his marriage, his kids, and his health for, what he had worshipped didn't come through for him. See, he would have been better off had he obeyed the first commandment. It happens all the time. I'm constantly bumping into people or hearing about people or reading about people who are shell-shocked by suddenly realizing that what they put their trust in and what they staked their lives on didn't come through. Promises were broken and covenants were violated and projections were wrong and plans went awry and one by one, listen, one by one, every player in the game of life comes to the hard reality that parents won't always come through for us and spouses won't always come through for us and children won't always come through for us and friends won't always come through for us and congregations won't always come through for us and yet, yes, even pastors won't always come through for us. They all disappoint us. So who will come through for you? For me? Where can we pin our hopes?
first commandment says, fear, love, and trust in God above all things, because he'll come through for you, both now and forever. Brothers and sisters, you do not waste your worship when you worship him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.